Hello, and welcome to the Elam Thriving Podcast. We're here to connect you with information and resources that promote thriving. Our goal is to see you and the individuals with disabilities that you support thriving together in community. This is the second episode in a two-part series featuring Dr. Bradley Height. To listen to part one, please check the link in the episode description. Otherwise, continue on and listen to part two, concluding our conversation. That's wonderful. And you already answered my, I was going to ask you a question of what would we compare the brain to, whether it's like a file cabinet or a cookbook. So it sounds like a computer is a pretty apt description. It is, is yes, yes. Because you have you have these um, properties that are like a, a hard drive or hardware. You mm-hmm. have wiring or axons. You have uh, little microchips or, or neurons. Uh, and then you have software. And you, you can consider the software as stimuli mm-hmm. you know the software that you implant into the brain is really what you expose yourself to uh, in your life whether it's uh, something sensory something auditory something visual uh, some type of learning um, and based on that exposure to that stimuli you may change the software uh, which is you know which brings us to you know, disabilities and learning right. disabilities it's not that a lot of these children are uh, have a disability, mm-hmm. or uh, again, the, the the proper vernacular is that they're differently able. They're just they learn a little bit differently, and right. maybe we just haven't figured out the appropriate protocol or intervention to get them to learn what we want to, to teach them. Um, and that all has to do with the software, with the stimuli. And that's a great way to view it, because not everyone has to have the same skills or the same aptitudes in every area. I do want to talk about brain growth, mm-hmm. so. It was previously thought at two years old, that's all the neurons you've got. But obviously, that's not true. There's a lot of growth and maturity. When does the brain reach maturity? Because I've heard a lot of different numbers and people aren't really sure. What is your view on that? So in terms of development, um, I think it's pretty understood that men, uh, the size of the brain, the, the, the contour of the brain, the morphology of the brain kind of stops its architectural changes at about 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. Women are a little bit before that. Again, this is kind of arbitrary and this is, you know, you, depending on what research article you read, you may see something different. Um, but in terms of growth, uh, right. that's about where we see the the, the the time points. Now, that being said, the brain changes throughout life. Right. You know, it, 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 um, it will change based on the stimuli that ex- you expose it to, the types of environment that you're immersed in. Uh, the brain will continually change. That's the idea of neo- neuroplasticity or neoplasticity. Um, and that, obviously, that, that's a, probably a term a lot of your listeners have heard that people throw around. Um, and it's, it's, it's a hot, remains a hot area. It has been a hot area of research um, for, for a long time now and will be forever because how does the brain change? What, yeah. what, what are the changes that are happening? Um, what does neuroplasticity look like? How would you define it? You know, that, these are all valid questions. Which I would if you would so indulge us, I don't believe everyone has a lot of familiar with neuroplasticity as I didn't really know about it until maybe a year or two ago when I started studying the brain more intently and had some more conversations with you. And, you know, we call it an education, a growth mindset, which is a relatively new concept. So I'm not sure everyone is familiar, but what would you say neuroplasticity is? Sure. I mean, the neuroplasticity at its heart it really is just the capacity of the brain to change you know it's not just like you're set you know it's not this kind of very solid 
immutable, unchangeable structure. It's very pliable. It's malleable. You can you can change not mm-hmm. only some of the small nuanced structures of it, like on a minute level, on a microscopic level, but you can change some of the electrophysiological um, properties of the brain, how these firing patterns take place, what they look like, uh, what circuits are being uh, evoked in uh, various circumstances, uh, what's the electrophysiological signature of this thought of of uh, this action that can all change as as we get older and you can even get down to some of the more idiosyncratic and smaller parts of neuroplasticity which is what receptors are being expressed Mm -hmm. um, what neurotransmitters are being released uh, what the neurochemistry like uh, that's changing in these areas Um, that all all those things have to do with neuroplasticity and all those things can change in a neuroplastic, you know, condition. Right. So it kind of goes against the saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It sounds like yeah. you can. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think we need to take that with, you know, uh, a little bit of awareness that, uh, you know, we are all differently set up genetically. You may mm-hmm. have a ceiling, you know, because of uh, structural limitations mm-hmm. in terms of you know, various parts of your brain that develop to a more robust capacity than others. But that sh- you shouldn't see that as a limiting factor. You should still exercise and exhaust every pathway to maintain your plasticity and, and to, to, again, like you said, learn new things and teach that old dog new tricks. That's a great thing to think about. And while I might never be a virtuoso in an instrument, I can definitely learn to get the basics down. And I think that's true for our students too. So if I'm taking this approach of neuroplasticity, I want to teach students things that previously were thought unattainable. Mm -hmm. How long does this process take to retrain or teach things that are difficult? That's a a really good question. Um, And that could be answered a lot of different ways, but I'll answer it in one succinct way. Because when we're talking about neuroplasticity in in its most fundamental foundational sense, it is really the creation of new neurons. It's neurogenesis because mm-hmm. you're making new neurons that are implanted into uh, cortices of the brain that then change the way the brain fires and change the way the brain functions. And like I said, every day you're making new neurons, right? right. Even if you, if you just sat on your butt and did nothing, you make millions of neurons every day. The, the reality is that about half of those or more just, just die. They just, they just succumb to, to necrotic cell death. Um, but... We can do things, we can expose ourselves to stimuli that enhance neurogenesis. Um, there's a few things that we know do that. We see a, a, an increase in neurogenesis for folks that engage in cardiovascular activity. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there's something very unique about repetitive, um, drawn-out cardiovascular activity that enhances the rate at which you make new neurons in the brain. Now, that's great, but again, like I said, a lot of those neurons just die. So if you just run, 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 that's great. You're making new neurons. But a lot of them may not be forming synapses into you know parts of the brain that you want to mm-hmm. use. Um, so another aspect to think about is the fact that you also need enriched environment. You need to be exposed to new novel challenges, new novel tasks. So one thing I always um, kind of uh, recommend that people do that are interested in this this uh, um potential of, you know, uh, changing their brain or, or, or um, creating a, a, a larger capacity uh, for thought, for uh, cognition, is I think that people should engage in some type of cardiovascular activity mm-hmm. 
And then after that, you should do something that's like a novel new challenge, whether it's being exposed to a new part of town or a crossword puzzle or a book you've never read. Because what we know is that you, you make new neurons from this cardiovascular work or this exercise, mm -hmm. but you don't form synapses and they don't form connections unless you have a novel task that you engage in. So you got to do those two things. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing is uh, nutrition. Um, and this is still very much a burgeoning field uh, yeah. that I can't speak to any expertise on. But not surprisingly, the more phytochemicals, the more vegetables you eat, it seems like that also aids in neurogenesis as well. So it sounds like to me, what we're doing is kind of the right way where we have physical education class. We have recess. Then we present challenges to students in terms of whether that's project-based learning or fun tasks that are fun and challenging rather than just rote repetition, right. correct? And then, of course, nutrition is that third essential component. That's a wonderful thing because we're kind of already doing a lot of this. So continuing to really emphasize this activity and making sure kids are moving and doing things that are worthwhile rather than just giving them a couple of things right. to keep them busy. Quote right. Mundane, like not challenging, you know, tedium time fillers, you know, is not a good thing that will create a stagnant uh, brain. One thing I didn't mention that is important for everybody, but specifically kids is sleep. Um, mm. That is yeah. also another uh, stimulant to neurogenesis and with, with, um, respect to memory and um, with respect to knowledge acquisition, if you were to study a child's brain as he's reading a book, reading a science book, reading an English book, and see kind of the electrophysiological signature of what his brain is doing, and then you watch his brain, his or her brain while she's sleeping, you see some of the same patterns. Right. So what you see is this reinforcement of these ideas the child was learning while they're sleeping. Uh, so sleep is another very important piece of knowledge acquisition, uh, memory, consolidation, learning, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it goes with everything I've been learning about exercise for adults. It's like sleep is an essential part of your physical health, but it sounds like it's also essential for mental health. And unfortunately, is one of those things that a lot of times goes by the wayside, which Absolutely. is sad because you need it. Yeah. So you mentioned challenge, and I just want, want to get your input. What is the line with challenge? So if something's way too difficult, yeah. is it still beneficial? Is it just, I give up, I'm not even going to try that? I know there's a lot of environmental factors and effort and perceived capabilities, but what is the level of uh, difficulty in challenge? Like, what should be Like, for like intellectually challenging a student? Right, like, is there too challenging? Is that not beneficial at all? Is there still some merit in it? Yeah, I think, this is my opinion, because um, uh, there's probably very few studies on this, like what's mm -hmm. the, you know, the limit to where you get a negative effect. Um, I think that had that specific question issue has to be, um, on the discernment or has to be, uh, discerned by the educator. Like, do you, do you see emotions being mm -hmm. evoked? Like is, is, is the, is the student getting uh, upset or frustrated? Because once that starts happening, once you get some of these more Again, limbic system structures, they start to override your ability to think rationally. Yeah. And then the learning is, you know, not going to go anywhere. Um, so you have to monitor the child. Be encouraging, obviously. Mm -hmm. Try to prevent them from going over the edge and, and falling into uh, frustration or anger or disappointment. Um, and maybe even develop cathartic, you know, uh, interventions and mechanisms to try to get them out of that. 
But um, if there is a point you start to see them just falling into an, an emotionally driven state, then that's going to really squander your ability to teach them anything and, and their ability to absorb any information. Right. And that sounds like that's where the benefit of a skilled educator in the classroom resides is knowing those kids and what's a good challenge versus what's overwhelming and being able to gauge their emotional responses and stuff. So I'm just curious. If I'm a teacher in the classroom, we're doing something hard. Mm-hmm. How do rewards play into the brain? Does it reinforce? Does it cement something in the brain? Does it do anything? Is it just nice to have? No, rewards, you, you do see a, a cement is a good word. You do see mm-hmm. a, a facilitation and a reinforcement. Um, and there's specific structures in the brain that are, that are involved with that, um, namely the nucleus accumbens. Um, <laughs> it's like the reward center of the brain. Um, but yes, yes, there is, there, I believe there is a benefit to, to rewarding a child when they do uh, succeed or when they do answer correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, that does help to reinforce um, not only the, the uh, behavior or the, uh, the knowledge that it took to get that reward, but also future learning, you know, right. for sure. There is, a, you know, there, there is a, a structural component to it. You, know, you are facilitating good circuitry when you reward someone. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know that's great news for a lot of teachers that use candy and other mm-hmm. movie rewards. That was my big thing for my classes. Like we work hard and we get to watch a movie Absolutely. on, on yeah. Friday. Because, yeah, it is fun. And I love to hear that it cements. It actually does something in the brain physiologically that really links to something greater and propels them forward. Yeah, and if you have anybody that challenges you on that, just send them to me. I'll, 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 I'll try to refute them. <laughs> I will be sure to do that. All right. So from what I've been hearing – it doesn't sound like there's such a thing as a, quote, math person or a science person or a book person. Would you agree with that or disagree? I, I would. Um, that's a tough question because um, that that uh, evokes the um, not dispute, but the, the, the conversation of nature versus nurture. Right. I do think that we all do have some predispositions mm-hmm. to math, to science, um, to sports, to athleticism. But you, you can't negate the fact that what you expose a child to can largely change you know, any pre, uh, genetic predisposition for sure. Right. Um, so th- I, I, I'd hesitate to say, yes, there's math people. Yes, there's book people. I think the people that we see out there that are math people, the people that we see that are out there that are literary or the people that we see that are athletes are probably people that had some predisposition to be gifted a little right. bit, but also worked their butt off, yeah. you know, and really pushed in these specific areas they were good at and, and maybe became excellent. And that's why, you know, uh, I've been in a few coaching situations in my life and I always loved the athlete that had you know, mediocre talent, but worked his butt off Mm -hmm. than the kid that maybe had some natural gifts, but clearly didn't care, you know? So (laughs) are there, are there math people? Are there literary people? Yeah. Some of us may be born with some of these predispositions. Um, But I think specifically during the developmental years, what you expose the child to can certainly change that. Yeah. Big time. Um, So it sounds like the more things we expose our kids, the better to, the better it is for them overall because it creates a more holistic experience for the brain rather than, you know, like the sports mom who's constantly pushing your kid in soccer to play that one position and never do anything else. And it sounds like you're pigeonholing in a lot of ways. You're you're exactly right. And then if you do that, and there's all other issues that come up with that as well, the kid doesn't really like the sport or starts to to kind of silently 
you know, resent the parent for pushing them so hard, then then emotions get involved and then you may be setting yourself up for, for more problems where, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you should allow children to be exposed to, you know, a multitude, a mosaic of different stimuli. You can't let them just like do whatever. Right. You have to guide them and give them some boundaries. Um, but for sure, you have to expose them to an enriched environment for sure. But it also sounds like they're never going, you know, like recovery is something that is attainable. It's not like they're stuck forever without capacity to learn in a different area. And it just takes a little bit more effort later in life. Is that accurate? A- abs- yes, okay. absolutely. It, it, um, it requires just better, um, more uh, well-studied interventions. And, and also, you know, I'm not one of these guys that's completely anti-pharmacology either. Mm-hmm. We may find some new drugs that will help and, and aid in some of these um, specific deficits that we see. Um, I do caution parents not to jump to that too early. Um, you got to remember your, your child, as I've already alluded to, is a very plastic, malleable mm-hmm. little person, you know. And um, while the brain is still developing, I personally have a little bit of a problem with giving someone a drug just to block receptors because you want yeah. them to behave a certain way. Right. Um, I understand there's extreme situations where you have to do that. Um, but I would just really uh, encourage parents to really educate themselves. You know, what exactly is this drug doing to my child's brain mm-hmm. neurochemically, neurologically um, uh, before you, uh, you know, prescribe something or allow something to be prescribed? Yeah. So to close, it sounds like the main things that parents can do, make sure kids are getting cardiovascular activity, mm-hmm. running around, playing, having fun, challenging them mm-hmm. intellectually at school, at home, presenting challenges nutrition, lots of vegetables and fruits, and then adequate sleep. Um, I'm assuming it's probably, I'm not an expert in child sleep psychology, but I'm assuming eight hours plus is probably ideal, correct? Plus, yeah, eight hours plus for for, for children that are, you know, preteen. And yes, you're correct. That's a great kind of banner or summation Mm -hmm. of everything. And and just to give the, the parents out there some resources, there's two books. Um, one's about 10 years old now. Uh, it's called Spark. Um, and it really just drives home the need for uh, physical activity for children's uh, brain development. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the, the research, the literature is robust on how much better uh, children learn when they are engaged in some type of physical activity, right. either before uh, class or in the middle of, of, of the classroom day. And the second book is a more recent book uh, by a guy by the name of Matthew Walker, which is called Why We Sleep. Um, and he just really gives a very thorough explanation of all the things that sleep does for us and all the things that sleep deprivation mm-hmm. really uh, hinders us in. So um, those two books, Spark and Why We Sleep. Great. And I will provide links to those in the description of this episode. So if you are curious, you can go and investigate those further. So Bradley, before we go, there is one question we ask of every guest. What is it that helps you thrive instead of just survive in the work that you do? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a fun question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, me personally, um, I think it's just a, just a penchant for investigation and, and just a natural curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people often ask me, uh, I teach neuroanatomy for medical students. They ask me, like, what are you doing in that neuroanatomy lab all day? And I often tell them, I say, I am seeing... God's resplendent nature mm-hmm. um, and his resplendent creativity being unfolded before my eyes. You look at this organ of the brain and just the untapped um, 
uh, knowledge that we have of it, uh, that really just drives me. And when I work with patients, uh, I think to myself, okay, what can I do in my small little world to maybe help somebody walk better someday if it's a you know, post-stroke patient right. or a spinal cord patient? Uh, how can I help someone learn a bit differently uh, or, or develop new protocols to educate children? Um, so that's what motivates me. And, and sometimes, you know, my job uh, and any researcher will have to admit that their job oftentimes some, sometimes feels mundane and, and tedious. You sit down at the bench every day, but you got to remind yourself, I'm doing this because, you know, hopefully someday, whether it's in my lifetime or not, mm-hmm. the work I'm doing will benefit some patient population or uh, some people that need uh uh, some type of intervention or even some type of new drug because of what I'm doing. Yeah. It sounds like it goes a lot back to the challenges that are good and sparking that creativity is a way to challenge yourself and self-motivate. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a real joy to really pick your brain about the human (laughs) brain. So, um, thank you for listening. If anyone has questions for me or Bradley, please email elamthriving at elamcs.org, or I will include Bradley's email in the description as well. So thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Nick, for having me. I appreciate it. I love what you're doing here, man. All right. Well, have a good rest of the day. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Elam Thriving Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to us if you left some feedback. You can learn more about us at our website, elamcs.org. Thanks again for listening.